0: Welcome to Trapping Radio. This is your host, Clint Locklear. And I do apologize, there wasn't a show last week. I actually did a show last week, but I had like a serious head cold or sinuses or something. And to be honest, I sounded like crap. I'm like coughing up snot burgers and everything during the show. And I was still gonna post it as gross as that was. And but I um I realized I committed a security sin while I was on the podcast. So since it sounded so bad, and I couldn't put it out till three, or four days later, anyway, I decided just to do one where I didn't sound so bad. Now, I don't sound exactly normal. I uh, still have somewhat of a sore throat. My wife's kid me that I've got Omnicron, uh, but I've tested, I do not. Just some type of weird thing that happens in the winter sometimes but um the security thing that i did which everybody needs to pay attention to this in the modern day is like i said i was hopped up on cough syrup and i wasn't feeling very good and i was on my way to deliver a bunch of product to a wholesaler with funky trap tags and supplies up in missouri And I said that during the podcast, which means if I would have posted that on Friday, the house, you know, 30,000 people and no telling how many others would realize that the house and shop is open and stuff like that. And that's just not smart online. You know, like showing your gun safe on Facebook with all the guns in there. Not so smart what I did was right up there in not-so-smart, you know, like when we go to the Nationals, I have a house sitter, which is a male that is a veteran, and he has pretty much uh, orders to take care of everything, and if anybody shows up to do any damage, we'll bury him when he gets back, because everybody knows that I go to the Nationals, and but on on trips like this you know it's not that big a deal we leave we come back nobody knows it's not so publicly put out there anyway that's what i did and i shouldn't have done it so that's part of the reason besides uh me sounded so bad and uh that was bothering me that i was going to post that with that on there i just decided not to now today is christmas eve it's a busy time of the year. It's busy time for everybody. I mean, it's in the middle of trapping season. you got the holiday season. you got everything going on. And uh, I'll be honest, this is the first time in a long time I feel like after Christmas Day, I get to breathe since a long time. I had some really big wholesale orders that I had to get done, which is kind of like, if you can imagine being in a a long, you know, like a big Olympic pool and you got to swim underwater, holding your breath to the other side and then you get to the other side and then you you go up for air, but you can't stay up for air because now you got other wholesale orders. You got to get done mostly for Alan because he ships out all my stuff from my store and his store and, and a lot of guys actually order horse wholesale from him. So it was just like, just go, 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 go. And then I get back, I've actually, I did not do anything except try to clean up this nasty shop for the last day and a half because somehow, and I'm amazed, I'm looking at my shop right now. I don't know how big it is, It's uh, I hadn't measured it. It's probably, I guess, 30 by 40 feet. It's a metal building and In the middle, somehow, between all of this getting stuff out for for guys to have this trapping season, all this space got regulated down to a walk space coming in the door to the back to where the glycerin barrels are at. So I get everything back on the shelves. I've taken two loads to the dump, uh, empty boxes to the the recycling bin here in town, and I'm just floored how much room's in here now. So, um, that, that's, so I, that's been my kind of like Christmas break was I hadn't put anything in a bottle in 36 hours. Woo-hoo! So that's, that's kind of what that's been about. Now, what I want to talk a little bit about today, cause it's probably going to be a shorter, um, podcast for the simple fact. I don't think my voice is going to hold out. <clears throat> I don't know why my voice is cracking the way that it is. It gets, Worse later in the day, so I'm doing this as early as I can. It's, it's about 9 o'clock in the morning uh, to get this out of the way so I don't sound like a, like I'm croaking over here. But um, what I want to talk about, we've been talking about you know, the basics, cow trapping, dirt holes, flat sets, blind sets, uh, different things like that. And in our modern world, that's what everybody male seems to go towards not everybody but a majority you know like people aren't getting to trapping now because they see a muskrat in the creek and they want to go see if they can catch it which is when you do a lot of interviews with a lot older trappers that's how they got started now it's because of instagram and facebook and no telling what else is out there now that i don't know about you want to catch coyotes like right off the bat and um which is probably one of the stiffest learning curves to get proficient at than anything else. Or it could be a bobcat just because you think they're really cool, you know, but it's not really, you know, back in the day people, you know, when you started trapping, it was almost like a, a rite of passage. Uh, You start on muskrats or raccoons. You work yourself up to beaver, you go to otter, You know, then you kind of like start getting in the mink because that's a little bit more complicated. And then eventually you start playing around with coyotes and bobcats and fox. And and of course, I know a lot of this is uh, dependent on where you live. But that's the way that it used to be. And you would build this base from muskrats all the way up to coyotes. But that's not how we do it anymore. We, we want to jump straight into, you know, what's the most coolest thing that we can post. And granted, you know, a big old coyote jumping around in a set for social media is way cooler. And then, a, you know, a muskrat on the bottom of a slide ride. And I get that. You know, uh, this year for Eastern guys, that muskrat may be worth more than that coyote. But that's not the reason guys are posting. It's, it's the coolness factor. And when I talk to most guys today at conventions and I, and I get a lot of questions on email and I get uh, different things like that. Like an example, I'm going to do a question real quick that I saw on email and uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but if you send it in, uh, this is the easiest way for me to answer. So I'm going to answer it pretty quick Uh, back on, I think, it's somewhere in the 400s on the podcast i talked about remakes and you 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 stake an animal down you catch the coyote and then what is the best way to handle that and in the podcast you can go back and listen to it it's um kind of the way that i've learned from reading from a woofer that was out west was Instead of trying to get in there and fight with the, the mud and the blood and, and all of that and the tore up ground, and nothing ever looks natural, and it's always kind of feel like they're half assets when you kind of do something like that. Move. <coughs> I hope I make it through this. Move the trap right on the edge of the burn circle because some coyotes will go in the circle, some won't go in the circle. So, you know, we've talked about that before, but the question was, do I need to take the trap and clean it? So it's a clean trap outside of the circle. And... It, it, it boils down to he doesn't have a lot of traps. It's not like he's got you know a couple hundred traps he's he's filtering through. It sounds like he's got a couple of dozen and he's worried that because he's got a, a trap that caught an animal that if you put it in clean dirt that it, you're gonna have problems like dig ups or, or something like that. Um, the answer to that is I wouldn't worry about it. I've taken traps from Tennessee catching, to Alabama catching, to North Carolina catching, to Louisiana catching, and I never clean them, ever, until basically they get so bad or it's the end of the season. There's gonna be a lot of odor that's gonna be around that catch circle. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. And having that little bit, if you're worried about it, you can take a second and when the clean dirt kind of scour off anything that's on the trap, you know, just get everything you can see off of it and then just set it and you're going to be totally fine. I know where this thought process comes from. You've got fresh ground, you got a fresh set, and if you've got a, a trap that's been called in, it's going to have odor and the animal's going to pick it up and they're going to, you know, not work the set right. And, and this that and the other, that is, I would say 99.999% trappers overthinking the process. And, and I, I get it. You want To do the right thing but no um, just set the trap right on the outside and and don't worry about it Uh, there's no reason to go home and clean your traps after you make catches there's no reason to do that there's no reason to clean a trap off besides just maybe running some dirt on it or something before you you set it out just to get any hair and stuff like that off of there It's not going to make you any difference. Because there's an old saying from some old guys that I remember from 25 years ago. If that little bit of odor on your trap is more inviting for them to investigate than what you got in the hole or at your flat set, that's your problem because you're using crappy stuff. That little bit's not going to make you a difference. I don't even... Go and clean traps if I'm putting in blind sets. I do bury my traps a little bit deeper than I think a lot of guys do. I want an honest half inch over the trap of dirt. That's what I want. Does that help with odor? I'm not sure, but I know I have less problems when when I bury it that deep. And I don't care if it's a one and three quarters trap. I still want a half inch of dirt over that trap. So to answer that question, no man, just set it back and go to work. Don't don't worry about little stuff like that. That's not one of the things that really needs to be bouncing around in your head, um, it's, it's not. Congratulations on catching the coyote, now go catch his buddy. And there's no reason to to make this harder than it is. But there again, I'm pretty sure because he doesn't have a lot of traps. He's getting into coyote trapping. He's reading all this stuff. And basically, without starting at muskrats, coons, beaver, otter, stuff like that, you don't have a base go out and 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 build on it's kind of like you're wanting to start in the NFL instead of starting in grade school for football some people can do it some people can you know I mean not not that it's the same but you're starting off at a level of trying to start from zero that it's just it's harder see when, when I started I started on Martin which was basically catching them on trees, fox using dry dog food and four foot of snow. And when I got back, I did go after coyotes, but I spent way more time because of the market at that time on muskrats, coons, beaver. And it, and there's a lot of things with water trapping that land trappers, I don't, think quite understand the coolness factor of it now before we get into this i want to thank our sponsors we have fnt fur harvesters everything you need for trapping hunting with hounds and predator calling we have funky trap tags and supplies which is also the sponsor man strong we have dunlap lures and we have Okie cable and trap out of oklahoma Now, one thing that all of these sponsors have is actually they pay for this show to be up here. That's the reason you get to do it for free. So, not only are they some of the best companies to deal with because of their honesty and their prices, and the way that they ship stuff out, and you don't have to worry about sending in money and having to wait three months to get something unless it's just something crazy going on. They actually support something that you probably enjoy listening to, like this podcast. And it's just, to me, I'll be honest with you, you need to support people that support things that you like. It's kind of like... The, the right thing to do. I do it all the time with weightlifting stuff. I buy t-shirts and trinkets and and mugs and things from companies that I really don't need it. But I listen to their podcast or I've read some of their books or something like that. And the information helps me. And it, to me, if it's just a way of paying that back. And supporting our sponsors to support this show is an easy way to do this. Now, what do you gain from water trapping, even though it doesn't have the super sexy appeal? It does, in a way. It, it, here's the difference. You go out today and you catch a couple of muskrats and a couple of coon and you throw it up on Facebook, you may not get the same response as if you catch 100 muskrats in a 100 coon. Or you go out and have a really good day, you know, a month, and you're catching a 1,000 raccoons in 30 days. There, There's a volume difference, it seems to be, where water trapping is kind of, I'm not going to say look down on, but it, it's it's not, what people consider the big leagues of trapping. Unless you're doing numbers that are mind-blowing. Then it kind of gets some sex appeal. But there's an opportunity factor that a well-rounded trapper has an advantage over a specialist trapper. An example is, say you live in Maryland. You're crawling with red fox. Red fox are on every farm. You know, it's not uncommon for kids in Maryland if they work at it to catch 300 fox in a season. It's it's They're almost like raccoons. Not exactly, but almost. I mean, there's that many fox in Maryland. Catching 15, 18 a day, it's just a good day. But if that's what you specialize in, And Red Fox are bringing $9, which I've seen over and over as the fur market rolls up and down and does all its craziness. That's a lot of work for for not very much. But it's kind of like right now. The Eastern Coyote, it's kind of iffy what you're going to get on. But muskrats look like they're going to come up. Well, if you don't have the skill set to go out and catch muskrats, that's what I'm considering a well-rounded trapper. You can catch coyotes, muskrats, you can go rack up coon, you can go load the boat up with beaver, you can go catch a hundred otter, you can go out and slam dozens and dozens of bobcats. That's what a well-rounded trapper can do. He can go snare hogs, he can catch a mountain lion, You know, he can catch squirrels. Whatever if it if it if it walk crawls or flies he can put steel on it one way or the other That's a well-rounded trapper and The more well-rounded you are the more opportunity you're gonna have as a trapper because if muskrats jump up to what it seems like five or six dollars a piece and a coyote is say $15 a piece and you have muskrats and you're looking at this from any inclination of income you're much better off to go after the muskrats but if you go out for the first time and try to catch muskrats because you go watch a DVD or you go watch some YouTube videos something as simple as a muskrat over scale you learn is not as easy as you think it is. I've been down this road. I remember the first time I got serious about muskrats. They jumped up to, I think it was $4.50. Now keep in mind for five years before that, they were 50 cents and a dollar. And $4.50 Was probably equal to $20 today in buying power so I was determined to go catch muskrats now I ended up catching a little over 400 which in the area I was at was unheard of at the time but there was like two and a half weeks of a serious serious ass-kicking happened to Clint yeah I would catch three or four day sometimes ten and I would struggle I would I would like in the middle of this I'm ordering different DVDs this was before the the age of YouTube and and everything else so in the middle of this I'm ordering books and DVDs I'm watching these techniques I try to go out and use them and and the train was so vastly different on the Tennessee River than it was that I was seeing in a lot of these videos it just didn't really pertain nor was me having to deal with 2 to 3 to 4 foot of water fluctuation per 24 hours i built floats on top of floats i'm talking i stayed up to 3 or 4 in the morning building floats well i didn't know it because i wasn't a well-rounded trapper at the time that where I'm at, floats don't really pay off till about February. So I'm dragging all these floats around in my boat. I'm setting them out everywhere. I'm thinking I'm going to have muskrats hanging off of them like crazy when I come back to check them the next day. I call like one. I mean, I worked my butt off. I call like one muskrat. So I'm like, holy cow. So then I let that run for a while as I start looking around and I'm like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go in and uh, try to find all the holes and put one tens and two twenties. Cause that's what I had. And sure enough, the, the catch kind of went up except it was very sporadic because I didn't quite understand where the muskrats would congregate. Because I wasn't seeing anything on the DVDs and the books that looked anything remotely similar to what I was at And I you know I would struggle and struggle and struggle And that's a muskrat and I keep in mind at this time. I've already caught over a thousand beaver So eventually I came across some guys that made this, uh, I think they're called the Braun Brothers out of Canada that made these uh, great big funnel colony traps with uh, sheet metal. They were round and they're catching like, good gosh, you know, 30 muskrats at a whack. So I get a bunch of sheet metal. I make a bunch of these things. It does. it, it, It just it's a waste of time where I'm at. But I did catch some, but just like one or two at a whack, not 30. So I built a bunch of colony traps that I could, and I built like a, I don't know, it was like 100 to 150 of them. Again, staying up for days. Couldn't even, I mean, my hands were so cut up and hurting so bad from just snipping wire. 12, 14 hours at a whack. I load them up. I go out. I set a bunch of them. I mean, I set all of them on everything that looks like a muskrat may think about going into. I caught like 20 muskrats. I'm like, holy cow, this is better. I'm a grown-ass man. Done caught. You know, I'm already done caught over, uh, I think at that time it was about 160 coyotes in a year. Caught over uh, 1100, 1,104 beaver. I've had days of catching 20 and 30 raccoons. And these little bitty simple muskrats was just it was it was driving me insane. Most of it, though, I'll be honest with you, was I didn't understand what muskrats needed in the banks they would be in and the banks they were not. So I'm spending a ton of time. Looking in the wrong areas for muskrats and when I would find a group of them I would catch them and then I would spend more time looking for them in bad places again And eventually my brain was like clicking over and was like, okay I'm seeing a pattern here So then I started going to what I thought the pattern was and that started picking up with these colony traps I learned because our population was so low compared to what I'm seeing on all these videos that leaving the colony trap in a hole more than a day was a waste of time because I would go down, I'd catch like say 15 or 20 muskrats. And we're talking out of 100 to 150 colony traps. And if I left them the second day, I may have three. But it took all day to run them. So I'm like, well, that just took my average from, say, 20 to like eight. This is not very profitable. So when I figured out the type banks that they would mostly be in, I could keep up this average. And I think the most that I caught in a day by doing this, I think, was 60. It's 56 or 60 by moving them every 24 hours and doing this. But it took a month for me to figure this out. So I want you to think about something. I'm already doing demos at the NTA. I've got uh, a book out. I've got a couple of uh, VHS tapes out because it was before DVDs. I've been paid to do lots of jobs so you know I'm making a living fur trapping and it took me 30 days to get proficient at muskrat trapping and I'm talking I was throwing everything at them including a kitchen sink I learned so much from that month of getting my butt kicked, I feel pretty confident now. If there's muskrats, I've got a good shot of racking up a bunch of them. But it took, and, I, and when I say that, I mean I'm hustling, I'm moving a hundred traps a day. All over the place. I'm I'm getting there at at daylight, I'm loading the boat, I'm coming off the water in the dark. We're talking all day. I wasn't setting for coons, I wasn't setting for beaver. I take that back. I did set some very easy beaver stuff just because it was too easy and uh so I probably caught thirty beaver or something in the middle of this. But I wasn't well rounded to go catch. Muskrats, And I remember when I first started, and I was going to, at the time, go, you know, because I was reading O'Gorman's books, High Rolling Coon Trapper, and I tried to trap Coon in Tennessee exactly the way that they do in Nebraska. Because all of that was built off a guy named Don Bolty. That was a monster coon reaper in Nebraska. And I remember loading the truck going to West Tennessee because they have more coon than we do here in hill country. And I'm picturing these checks like I'm I'm seeing in the magazines and stuff. And I ended up averaging... 18 coon a day, over two weeks. Coons are bringing decent money. So it was not a bad trip. But what I learned was, I've got to be well-rounded enough to trap in different type of terrains, under different type of environments, with coons that aren't Nebraska coon that don't react the same. And someone says a coon is a coon is a coon, well, tell them to take your happy butt down to Louisiana with a bunch of dog proofs and come back with 500 coon. Now, they will, they'll, they'll try to hide from you because they're going to get their feelings hurt really, really bad by doing that. So a coon is not a coon. See, in the South, all the old timers used to blind set coons. That was the main way you caught coon. Now, there's a genius behind that in the South because our coon are not worried about getting big and fat. Nebraska, Iowa, Minnesota, Michigan, Illinois. If they don't get big and fat, they don't make it till spring. They load up on carbohydrates early season. They eat as much meat as they can later in the year because the carbohydrates, they, they're they losing so much muscle mass, but they're at least staying warm. They got to start eating meat, uh, so they end up going back to the water when they can, stuff like that. They start acting more like land animals. All those things aren't really in the books, in the DVDs. So here I am, and I, I'll be honest I can quote you parts of, and it's a great book, High Rollin' Trapping by Craig O'Gorman. Me and my wife saved up enough money to go to Jamaica when we were first married. The only book I took was that book because we didn't have any money to really go out and do a lot of stuff in Jamaica, so we just kind of sat on the beach, which was nice because... A lot of European girls were there, and they don't dress from the the top up the way that Americans dress because they don't put anything on the top up. So I had plenty of entertainment. But I went to the library that the motel was bragging about, and 90% of it was in Chinese. So it didn't do me any good. So I read High Rolling Coon Trapping by Craig O'Gorman every day for 10 days. I would hear it in my sleep. I would hear it when I was out trapping. I could hear his voice. I mean, in my mind, I knew I was going to crush it. I did okay. I was running, guys, 200 traps. Two to three hundred miles a day. Average 18 Coon. Now, most people that have name recognition the way that I do are not going to tell you stories like this. Because they want to tell you when they had the 30 coon a day stories. But see, I wasn't well rounded enough with raccoons to do this. And this was way before dog proofs. We can't use body grips on land in Tennessee. We could snare, and I did snare a bunch. Most of the time, it was footholds. In all reality, compared to what I thought I was going to catch, it was pretty rough. Because I'm hearing these guys in Iowa, in Nebraska, Minnesota. You know, they're catching 40, 50, 60, sometimes 100 raccoon in a day. And I'm absolutely killing myself to average 18. Do we have the coons that they have in numbers? No. But I didn't know that at the time. So without being a well-rounded trapper, which requires water, you can't take advantage of opportunities in the fur market when they come up. Because I can tell you, someone that's been in this game a long time, there's years, even Southern Coon, $15, $20 for good ones, 12 for average ones. You can make some money Hustling with that type of numbers if you know how to do it. Now, if you're just a coyote trapper and you try to go and ramp up raccoon trapping, you're probably going to have what happened to me happen with you. You're going to get humbled. Because in your mind, I catch raccoons all the time by accident. How hard can it be? Yeah, go catch a thousand of them. You'll see how hard it is. I can just throw a honey bun in a cage trap in the backyard and catch a raccoon. Uh Uh-huh. Repeat that 500 times. Water fluctuations, ice, frozen ground, rain. Because all that's different depending on how it's going to react to where you're at. Down here, if it gets down to 15 degrees, you might as well snap off your raccoon traps. They ain't playing. Up north, hell, they running like crazy. They're trying to to get as much body mass as they can. So when the market rolls around, that's where the opportunity comes from. And as much respect is I've got for dog-proof traps like when I go out and I grab an FB1 or an FB2 and I put it around feeders in Texas or somewhere like that I've got confidence in those traps I really do but there's certain times and places you don't get the results that you're looking for so you have to be able to to adjust. Like I can tell you from being out with Red and him showing me about raccoons in Iowa. Putting a 220 at that time was 280s. In trails, is a lot more of an art form than most people think it is. See, it's easy to go, we well, just put a 220 in a trail. Mm-hmm. Where? How do you hide the animal? See, Red was very specialized in raccoon, and the knowledge he gave me was mind-blowing. And most people wouldn't even consider raccoon trapping to be able to have that much knowledge to give. But see, Red's a well-rounded trapper, for the most part. I don't think he does a lot of land trapping. But on water animals, they're all in trouble. He's just never had the interest to really go out and do a whole lot of land trapping. And if, if Iowa coyotes ever got up to $100 a piece, Red would struggle, but he would eventually figure it out. I have no doubt about that. So you, you, you've got to be well-rounded. And the, th- the thing about water trapping that I think American males need today is a lot of times you feel like a kid. You're in your chest waders, you're in your hip waders, you're getting muddy, you're sliding down the bank, you're trying not to get overly wet, you're trying to find tracks and trails, you're trying to figure out what their movements are and all this type stuff, and it's, it's just very different psychologically than land trapping. It's more like being a kid. And, and as grown men today, sometimes we need to do things like kids. We don't need to be the super adult all the time. There's a time and place for everything. Getting down in the water, not only do you get to be a kid, you get to see a whole different world that most people never observe. That three or four foot that's next to the water, when you really get into it, Man, that's a different universe. When you get where you can just look out across the creek and your brain registers, that's where the coon's going to be. That's where the rats are going to be. That's where the beaver's going to be. This is where the otter's going to go around this. And that's where the mink's going to be in the high bank and go down. And you just know. But it takes practice. It takes real life experience. Knowledge from a book does not give you that. Knowledge from a YouTube uh, video does not give you real world experience that you can actually put to use on any type of scale. i give you an example on mink. We used to go to a guy's place here in Tennessee and do... Not our big yearly Tennessee convention, but like in July, in the spring, and stuff like that. And he had a creek that was next to his house, and there's a bridge, a road. You got a road, like he lives on a road, then there's a creek that comes under the bridge, and then you got it going through his place. And we did demos and all that over there around the creek and other side of the creek. Now, the interesting thing that he observed that I learned from him about mink is they don't like to be out in the open and when you get to the point that you can realize stuff like this you're on a different level than most people are when they're trapping and that's a level that you want to get to so what he noticed and what he showed us one day from mink tracks was A mink, and he used to go catch in Tennessee, There's like three or four guys would catch 60 to 80 mink. All kind of the same age, they were older and um, they knew mink. Because we don't have a ton of mink. But the mink would come from the wooded side on the other side of the road, go under the bridge. As soon as it came out from under the bridge, and this is a bridge, I mean, you can walk under, the water's three, four foot deep. And, uh, so it's not a culvert, but uh, he would come out the other side of that bridge. He would go perpendicular straight up the bank along the side of the road, go to the wood line, which would be about 20, 25 feet from the Creek run around through the edge of the woods till the grass was not cut anymore. And it was woods again and then he would come down that cover and go back to that creek, which means the easy place for a trapper to set was on Charlie's Creek where the grass was cut because it had nice banks and stuff, but the mink weren't there. He said he's only caught. He sets every year. He sets that creek. Only one one mink was caught In that open grass. And the grass was open probably 50 to 60 yards long and like 25 feet deep to the woods. When you start understanding stuff like that with mink, you're at a whole different level. And I'll be honest, I'm not a mink guy per se like some guys are. I learned a whole lot more about mink when I started playing around snaring them and getting out of the water. Because I realized, like when I'm floating the Squatchy River when I was doing beaver work, I would see mink out on the banks. And lo and behold, I never saw a mink within six to eight foot of the water. Never. But I saw several mink Way up on the high bank, running around, sniffing around, moving. But never really down at the water. But what do most DVDs show you? Now, in some some areas, maybe that's very different. I don't know. But being well-rounded and being good at all things trapping... I think is hugely important to the development of a trapper. Just like I believe a coyote trapper is going to be a better coyote trapper if he learns to be a coyote snareman and then he can go back to traps. Because you're going to learn exactly where the coyotes are or not when you start hanging snares. And you don't really get that with footholds, unless you're going strictly blind sets. Now, one thing about water trapping is the gear and the laws and permission. Because I want to go into muskrat trapping, beaver trapping, and all this uh, kind of a basic thing, the, the do's and don'ts and stuff that I've learned doing this over the next few weeks of the podcast but you need to understand what your laws are at because they're radically different where you go. In Pennsylvania, you can set a body grip a certain size in a waterway. Well, that's so ambiguous. What does that even mean? When it's raining? When it's flooded? When it's drought? It's not saying it's in the creek, it's not in the the below the high water mark. It's 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 weird. It's weird how states do certain things. Like Tennessee, we couldn't set body grip on, on, on dry land forever till a couple of years ago. We now set like 110s for mink. But if we could set a body grip, I think it was 12 inches in a hole, we could set them on dry land. Well, what's a culvert? It's a hole. Game wardens used to throw a freaking hissy fit with me, but I was doing it legal. It was a weird law that you had to understand. Can you do you have to have permission to trap a creek from the road? Certain places, yes, certain places, no. If you're in a boat or a canoe, can you stake to the bank or can you even stake out in the water? There's certain places that I have not trapped. Because there's a place in Alabama that actually has a lot of muskrats. I'm not going to say what it is because I know some guys that trap down there. And they catch like 1,000, 1,500 rats. That you cannot even stake two in the water for an animal. Because it's considered somebody's property. Now if you get permission, you can. But if you've ever been on a big boat line, good luck trying that. See, Tennessee, when I first got back, it was just accepted that you could road trap. Then we got a new uh, Tennessee wildlife commissioner that decided he wanted to start mixing hunting and trapping regulations. And pretty much was going to say that if you were road trapping, that you were molesting animals in the public right away, which was a hunting law that it kind of destroyed road trapping in Tennessee now will that hold up in court I really don't know to be honest with you because if you because mixing hunting and trapping laws I don't see how that's that works because you can't shoot a deer with a 22 but you don't want to shoot a uh, you know a coon with a 30 odd six. So mixing those, those laws the way that he did, which kind of became the way that it is now, is it a real law or is it just one of these that everybody says it so you have to kind of roll with it? I'm not sure. But you, you got to know on your permissions and you got to know what the laws are. You got to be very careful when you're water trapping certain places, depending on what the game wardens are like. I've heard horror stories in Virginia where they put totally legal traps in at six o'clock at night and their game wardens waiting on them at 10 o'clock in the morning because they dropped the river. And now the top of their body grip is sticking out of the water and they write them a ticket. there's nothing a trapper can do about what they do at a dam. He can only set what is what legal at the time, and there seems to be no mercy in that state on common sense when it comes to something like this. So know your laws, know your permissions. Safety in the water, guys, is something that most red-blooded American males take for granted. I mean, I used to, I would not do this now, but I'm talking 20 years ago, I'd be in hip boots in a canoe on a fast-moving body of water, beaver, muskrat, and coon trapping for eight hours a day, jumping in and out of a canoe because I was very used to being in a canoe running rapids and all that in hip waders not the smartest thing to do because if you do end up in the water now you've got weights on now I would only wear chest waders neoprene with a belt to run my, uh, below my boobs so it's actually like a flotation device Trappers drowned every year water trapping. The water is cold. It can be swift. You can be tired. You can get hurt. So in the back of your mind, you just have to understand you're dealing with something that can hurt you in the winter, which is water. So you need to be very careful with what you're doing. We've all been water trapping and get the water where it's a half inch over hip waders and it's just a miserable day. But I've also known trappers. One was in Pennsylvania. If I mention his name, you'll know who he is. He passed away several years ago. Somehow putting his boat back on the trailer, he slipped on the boat dock as close as I can tell from the stories. And I guess he knocked himself out, hit his head, and he drowned right there at the boat dock. So you know you can be out on a, a river seven eight miles away from any boat landing, and everything dies, motor, no fuel, whatever. And you can be, you can get in trouble. It's not quite the same on a coyote line. You can just walk to a farmer's house somewhere, go back to the road. You're, you're it's not like you're falling into water when it does that. So. If, you, if you've never done a lot of water trapping just keep in your mind I'm not saying being scared of it but just be aware of the dangers of being around water in the winter it's very different when I go swimming in the lake in July or if I fall off a bank in February and the water's forty degrees. And let me tell you, I've been swimming in the winter and it is not fun. You learn while you're on the water to, to, to for because hypothermia is real. The whole time I was in Alaska, we're talking average temperature of twenty below zero. In the winter, and winter starts there in August, to 65 below, which was the coldest that I dealt with in Alaska, I personally didn't know of anybody that died of hypothermia in the military. I do know very well, actually was a friend of mine, that died at Fort Campbell because he got too wet at... Between 28 and 30 degrees, and he died of hypothermia in the middle of the night. Took off all his clothes, wrapped himself around a small tree before we could find him. And he passed away on a helicopter getting back to the hospital. I, don't be scared, but just be aware. So, like if you're on a boat or a canoe, I always took a poncho liner with... Um, Shoot, what do you call them things? I'm looking at one right now on my belt squat. Um, Bungee cords. I could throw up a military poncho liner, just like we slept in under the military, anywhere and get out of the rain if it was really, really cold or a really bad storm. I started doing that one time because I was on Battle Creek and I was way up Battle Creek with a canoe with a trolling motor and a nasty thunder and lightning and windstorm came out of nowhere. And the only thing I could do to get out of anything was flip the canoe upside down on the bank up next to a tree and get under it. And all I could think about is now I'm got metal over me with a lightning like this. And it was about right about freezing. So I had two choices: take a chance with the lightning, or take a chance with hypothermia. And since I didn't get hit with lightning, I didn't die of hypothermia. It worked out. But just be aware of of your surroundings when you're around water, because I can tell you, you can be walking in two foot of water and hit a beaver um, run or a hole, and you can be over your head in one step so just just be be cautious you want to be a water trapper at least some so you can get the skill set and one, I really think trappers that don't do water trapping you need to experience that part of trapping that part of our heritage goes back to the mountain men they did it without waders without good equipment And they had to walk out in that icy water in the Rocky Mountains and do it. It's part of your heritage. You'll get to see a whole different world that you're not used to seeing. And you'll get to experience stuff you'll never experience on a Kyle line. Know your laws. Know your regulations. Know what you're... you're, uh, To stay legal, if you have permission or not. And just basically... Understand that you can get in trouble around water and just be aware of that. And most importantly, have fun. When you start feeling like a kid, roll with it. There's just something about playing in the mud that's fun. In and out of the, off the banks. Especially if you're doing it for, for high numbers trapper. It's like drag racing, man. That's one reason I have such an affinity for water trapping. If you're going to run a big beaver line or a coon line or an otter line. And you're running lots of traps on a 24 hour check. That's the closest thing. You cannot replicate that. If you've got a decent amount of water you can't replicate that on a on a on a land trap line it's like drag racing you figure out how to save seconds here and seconds there and before you know it I mean your your adrenaline's going you're this your 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 brain disconnects you go into a different zone And you're just moving with purpose. And that's a feeling that all trappers should experience. All right, guys, for my voice gets any worse. I will talk to y'all next week. I hope y'all have a great Christmas and just enjoy life while you're out there.